Would you be seated? We continue on today with a, a series of sermons about how we commit our lives to Christ and how we grow in Christ's image. We do this every fall, just before we start Advent, just before we start our Christmas celebration. Actually, I can't really say that, can I? Because the radio station and all the stores have beat us to it. So some of us have inadvertently started our, uh, our Christmas and our Advent but uh, in terms of the church, we will, we will pause before we do those things and we will uh, think a little bit about how we commit our lives to Christ, especially as we get ready for 2013, as we get ready for a new year right around the corner. So we're studying the scripture in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells one story after another, after another, after another, describing the kingdom of God describing that reality that breaks into our lives when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Describing what Jesus brought with Him, ushering into our world when He came freely among us to live and to show us the life that we're intended for in this life and to make a way for us to know Him face to face in the next life, eternal life. Jesus tells one story after another so that he doesn't have to give bullet points. He doesn't give a lecture. He doesn't give a working definition of the kingdom that people would struggle to be able to understand. He tells stories so that they can live into the mystery of what the kingdom is all about. So that their lives will be transformed through their living by the work of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, Pastor Tim kicked off this series of sermons talking about how we commit our time to God. Recognizing that every moment of every day is a gift full of possibility, full of opportunity to serve God in limitless ministry within God's kingdom. Last week we talked about committing our tithe. A tithe is simply an, an old word that means 10%. It's the realization that everything I possess comes from God and it is the least that I can do to give 10% back to the Holy One. So that I begin to learn to live out the life of generosity to which God calls me and and which is described from cover to cover within the Holy Scripture. So today, I'd like to think about how we come together as Christians. Part of our commitment to Jesus Christ is to live together with other sisters and brothers in Christ. We call that fellowship. Some of us call it Christian community, but the word we may know best is fellowship. It's in our passage today. Uh, chapter 13 begins with this description of the, of the fourfold ministry that Jesus uh, displays all throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see Jesus uh, preaching, teaching, healing, and performing other miracles and establishing relationships with people. That's sort of a summary of the ministry of Jesus. We see that in Matthew chapter 13, just as Pastor Richard read a moment ago. But what I I hope we can see today is that Matthew 13 also tells the story of what is happening around Jesus' ministry, the context where he serves. It starts off in chapter 13, verse 2, describing the people who are there as witnesses to what he's doing. The scripture says that great crowds are moving with him. That's one of my favorite phrases in the Greek New Testament. Polane megalane. You can hear the mega. It's a mega crowd coming out to see Jesus. 
And they follow with him in verse 2. In fact, what the scripture describes is this scene where Jesus has been staying the night in this village that is located along the seashore of the lake uh, that we call the Sea of Galilee. He steps outside in the morning and it seems that almost first thing, this crowd of people that has stayed the night waiting for him, watching for him, or else word has spread through the night that he's arrived. We're not sure. But they come to where he is going to be teaching. And, and I imagine it like this. If you've ever gotten there early along the route where a parade is scheduled to come through town, if you've ever been there early at a parade route and you scope out your spot and you step up to the, to the, to the, to the barricade or up to the curb to the edge of the street and you think, well, this is where I'm going to have a great spot to watch the parade. And, and then a, a, little, a little guy or a little girl kind of just sidles in in front of you, you know, right at kneecap level. You know, and, and, and what Grinch is going to move that precious little child out of the way, right? So, okay, I'm going to give up my spot to the little one. But then what little one is going to be at a parade by himself or herself? So, you know, you kind of have to make room for mama or granny or whoever it is that is with precious at the parade. And next thing you know, you're four deep and can't see, you know, the giraffes coming by, right? Jesus is standing at the edge of the water and the people keep cutting in line and pressing in on him and he's backpedaling until he's ankle deep in surf and finally he steps back onto a boat, just a little fishing vessel we think that is moored there right at the edge of the water and Jesus teaches from the boat so that the crowds can push all the way up to the water's edge And listen to what he has to say. And that's how chapter 13 starts out. Verse 2 is describing that for us. And verse after verse, story after story, Jesus teaches and preaches and shares these parables so that people will come to an understanding of what the kingdom of God is all about. There's a transitional moment. And we see this again and again throughout Jesus' teaching. There's a transitional moment about verse 10. Jesus has been interacting with this great crowd And then at verse 10, he sort of turns to the side to where the disciples are located. The disciples are Jesus' closest friends and closest followers. There's 12 of them at this point in the story. And he turns to the side and sort of begins to unpack some of the language, begins to explain some of the stories that he's been telling, some of the parables. He teaches them for a little while. And then again, later in the story, around about verse 34, 35, there's another transition. Jesus turns back to the crowds And teaches them again. Here's what I hope we will see today. Have you ever noticed how rare it is that Jesus is alone in the New Testament? Have you ever paid attention to just how much time Jesus spends in relationship, in fellowship with other people? It is all throughout the Scripture. There seems to be sort of a spiritual discipline for Jesus that maybe first thing in the morning or late into the evening, sometimes all throughout the evening, the scripture says, Jesus will step off by himself. He will go away to a deserted place. He'll go into a secluded garden. He'll go up on top of a mountaintop. He'll find some place where he can pray, where he can meditate, where he can reflect, where he can connect with God the Father. 
And then at the end of that private time, Jesus will come back to the crowds. Or more often than not, the crowds are looking for Him the entire time that He is in seclusion. And many times in the Scripture, He's interrupted. The disciples will come and fetch Him, or uh, the crowds will come and interrupt Him. But then time and again, when Jesus leaves those moments of solitude, He goes directly back into conversation, teaching, preaching, healing, establishing relationship with the crowds and the disciples. See, I I draw attention to this this morning because I believe that God intends for God's children to live in this type of relationship. I believe God intends for God's children to be in fellowship with one another and, of course, with the Holy One. Now, I need to be quick to confess that not every gathering of God's children is edifying. Uh, If you follow the National Football League, you know that the league had a a terrible embarrassment, and and I think you could draw a direct correlation from this embarrassment to hiring Tim Tebow to come play for the Jets. Because a few years ago, the gate D at the New York Jets home games became so raucous, so disrespectful, so disgusting, so nasty towards the women in attendance at these games, that the NFL had to come in and bring extra security, law enforcement. That still didn't shut things down. They had the paddy wagons pulling people out. That still didn't... So finally they had to redecorate. They had to hang these massive banners down the middle concourse of these spiraling ramp staircases that people were using for heckling zones so that people couldn't see the women and be degrading toward them. So not every gathering of God's children is necessarily respectful of God's creation, if you understand what I'm saying. But to go a little bit further, not every gathering of Christians is necessarily edifying to the body of believers. Not every time that we get together is our best nature put forward. In fact, the Holy Scripture has to spend some time sort of teaching and reteaching what happens when believers come together? First Timothy chapter 3, for example. The Scripture says, I'm writing you these instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. I love that language. God's household. God's family. God's family get-together. Mamaw's kitchen, right? Thanksgiving's coming up. The Scripture takes the time to say, you know, some of y'all don't know how to act when you come into God's dining room. And we don't act the same way that the rest of the world behaves. Other places in the Scripture, the Apostle puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. And I love that passage too because I expect it to say we are members of the body of Christ. And there are plenty of other places where the Scripture says we are members of the body of Christ, but here it says we are members of one another. It goes on. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not make room for the devil. And do not... Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, 
but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Can you hear the stark differences between the world and God's kitchen? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness, wrath, anger, wrangling, slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know, the Scripture is saying uh, when you are in relationship with fellow believers, when you have a question or when you don't understand or when you can't remember. Step one is not to impugn someone else's morality. Step one is not to question someone else's character. Step one is not to go on your blog and and launch a, a major smear campaign. Step one is to say, I may not be understanding on my end what it is that you are attempting to communicate. See, God calls us to live in faith community and it's not going to look like the world. It's going to look different. We're surrounded by this unsettling sort of 21st century trend, at least in the United States and some other Western locations, for this highly privatized, highly individual faith. As long as I can get... Uh, my Wi-Fi signal on my iPad so that I can see my favorite preacher from uh, 10 states away and can have my quiet time for my spiritual moment for 10 minutes, then I have all the fellowship that I need. And that's not the faith of the Bible. That's not the faith of Christian tradition handed down through the years, generation by generation, and not simply just because they didn't have the Internet. We're called to relationship. God expects this in our lives. And this morning I'd I'd like to look at three specific ways that God directs us to have fellowship, relationship with one another. First one, God expects us to live in Christian fellowship. God expects us to have Christian relationships, relationships with other sisters and brothers in Christ. And And I love this church for so many reasons, and this is one of them. We make this easy. We make this fellowship simple. You know, just last night in the life of the church, and the deacons do this every year, just last night the deacons hosted a fellowship meal downstairs, a delicious meal. We even had those wonderful homemade, made-from-scratch desserts that we have every Wednesday night at the fellowship meal. More about that later. We had those last night. We, we learned some wonderful things about one another. We learned, you know, that the men in this church do not... Uh, change their shirts. Um, you can ask a deacon about that. Uh, we learned that Donna and Diana will take a task and make sure that it gets done no matter what. And, and every year that I've been here, the new member dinner has been a wonderful success because of, of these folks and folks like them and their leadership. But we don't do that just on an annual basis. We do this every week. Any Wednesday that our kids go to school in the morning, we have a fellowship meal at night. 5.30, we start serving. 5.30, 5.45, a delicious meal. Those wonderful desserts I mentioned a moment ago, including the one with the crumbled buttery topping on it with the fruit surprise in the middle. It's delicious. Uh, 
I, I commend them to you. And, and this Wednesday, in fact, we are celebrating Thanksgiving. Next Wednesday night, the kids won't go to school, so we won't have our fellowship meal. And so this Wednesday night, if you've never come to a fellowship meal, this would be a great time. First time's free. And, and just come on out. Let us know by noon on Tuesday, and we will have a place set in your honor. Men in the life of the church, you get two opportunities this week. Just so happens that this week on Thursday, the men's ministry will be having our business person's luncheon. Whether you're a college student, whether you're a young professional, somebody in your a career person or retired, on Thursday at noon, we'll be some folks gathering at Frisch's to have men's fellowship together through the men's ministry. God expects us to live this way in Christian fellowship with fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. Secondly, God expects us to worship together with other Christians. Worshiping together. This is one of the most important of all the spiritual disciplines. And yes, I, I want to be quick to say, I'm open here theologically. Yes, I'm open to a broad definition of worship as being your job or your vocation or where you go in the community and serve and so on. I'm open to that type of of understanding of worship. Yes, those things are worship in all sorts of settings, but yes, I am also saying something very specific. God expects that we will have a special location set aside for worship together with sisters and brothers in Christ on a regular basis. The Scripture is clear about this. And, 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 And it can be something very simple. You know, in Genesis, people worshipped next to a pile of rocks. People would be traveling and they would cross a river or they would make a turn on a road or they would have a vision and they would stop and they would dig around in the dirt and they would pile up some rocks so that every time they passed that way, they could point to that pile of stones and say, this is the place where I encountered the Holy One. And anybody else who came along that way would be able to see that pile of rocks and say, aha, God did something in somebody's life here. And here is testament to it. In the book of Exodus, it was a tent. It was a tent. People would pack it up and carry it with them wherever they went in the wilderness. And then when they set it up, it didn't matter the location, they could point to that tent set aside as a sacred space where they would worship the Holy One. In 1 Kings and in the Psalms, it was the temple. A place where people would come on spiritual journey. They would come on pilgrimage and they would gather there and they would worship. In the New Testament, it was the synagogue. The scripture says again and again that Jesus went regularly to the synagogue, whether in his hometown or someplace else on his travels. A specific location set aside for regular worship with fellow believers. And again, it doesn't have to be spectacular. Let us never forget. Let us never forget, no matter what generation or culture we find ourselves in, that the origins of our faith, the first century Christians, were worshiping in caves. They were worshiping in tombs because that was the only place they could go to worship safely. And yet they would gather there Time after time after time. And those are our earliest examples of Christian art and Christian worship. It can be a simple location. It doesn't have to be a cathedral. It doesn't have to be a 120-year-old building with towering ceilings and lovely stained glass windows. 
but someplace set aside for regular worship with sisters and brothers in Christ, that's one way God calls us to live in relationship with other believers. God calls us to fellowship. Secondly, God calls us to worship with other Christians. And thirdly, God expects us to serve together, to minister, to bless together with other Christians. Not just breathe the same air in the same space and act like we don't see each other. But to be able to work together toward a common goal that is a bigger task, a bigger accomplishment than what I can do on my own. Because you see, again, God expects our lives to look different from lives of people who do not know Jesus Christ. And not just on Sunday morning and not just in this location, but every day. God expects us to look different. Expects us to be the new creation or at least be becoming the new creation that the Holy Spirit is trying to make of us day by day. Somebody may have mentioned it already in the service. But down at the end of the pew, there are lists of names. Today is the day that we're going to elect deacons, folks who will be the spiritual leaders of the church. You know, this should be one of the real criteria that helps guide our voting today as we select deacons. Does this person live like Jesus? Does this person even try to live like Jesus? Does this person... Can this person be in fellowship with others? Can this person be in worship with others? Can this person serve together with other believers? A deacon should be able to do these things or at least be passionately committed to learning how to do these things. There's something to be cherished within the family of God. Presbyterian pastor Frederick Buechner puts it this way, a family... A family, like the family of God, is a web so delicately woven that it takes almost nothing to set the whole thing shuddering or even tear it to pieces. And yet the thread, the individual material, the thread it's woven of is as strong as anything on earth. That's family and that's the family of God. So this morning... I'm thinking of it and and would encourage you to think of it as a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline that begins with one simple question. Who is going through life with you? Who is making their way through this life with you, step by step, day after day? That's such a simple question, and yet it leads to such a profound answer. You may have 4,999 Facebook friends, right? You can only have up to 5,000, is that right? You can have that many minus one Facebook friends. Or you may have hundreds of Twitter followers, or you may be linked in with thousands of other professionals. And yet, who is really walking through life with you day after day. Who is willing to do that? I always think of that line in the movie Goodwill Hunting, which if it wasn't filled with just foul language would be, you know, a film that we could show a lot of clips of in worship, but alas. Uh, But I always think of that, that, that moment where they're having conversation about who Will's real companions are. 
Who does he really talk with? And his, his shrink says to him, no, not him. He would lay down in traffic for you. I mean, who are the folks that would go to great lengths to stick with you through life? And who would you trust in that role? Jesus had 12. Jesus had 12. And in fact, he only went 11 for 12 in finding people who were willing to go to such lengths with him. Back and forth, the scripture says, from being in private to being with the crowds to being with the disciples to being alone. The disciples were always there. And in verse 36, that's where the scripture winds up this story. Jesus is exhausted. He's been trapped in that little boat all day long as the crowds are pressed up against the water's edge. Finally, he splashes down out of the boat and walks back into the house where he's been staying and the disciples go with him even there. He left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples approached him. Who is going through life with you? Even when you are broken down, battered, alone, exhausted, fatigued to the point of failure. Who is going through life with you? Who would you call in case of emergency? Who would you depend upon in the middle of the night? Someone has to be closest touch. 500 miles away doesn't count in time of emergency. And this is especially important for today, Veterans Day. Back in 1920, on the second observance of Armistice Day, there were church groups already then who started petitioning President Woodrow Wilson. And they said to him, Mr. President, yes, we should take pride in the heroism of those who have died to bring this conflict to an end. And they said, yes, Mr. President, we should express gratitude to those who have served and are still alive today having served to make sure that we are free. And they said, yes, Mr. President, we should also pause. We should also pause on the Sunday closest to Armistice Day to make sure that we pray for peace. To make sure that we pray for international peace in the hopes and in the deeply held conviction that one day through the work of God in our world there will come a day when war shall cease. The Old Testament talks about taking instruments of war and beating them back into instruments of farming and, and, and agriculture. The churches almost a hundred years ago were saying we need to pray for that reason. And at a theological place, they said this because they understood that at the other end of my bayonet is a culture or a nation that also includes my fellow believers. All throughout the world, in every nation, there are people who have heard the message of Jesus Christ and have made Him Lord and Savior. And by praying for peace, we can stay in fellowship with our sisters and brothers in Christ. I need to be in fellowship with these folks. Now, I was talking to somebody the other day, my friend Devin, and she was telling me about meeting a buddy of mine named Chris. And it took me a second because, like the commercial says, there are some people in our lives who haven't called us by our real name in decades. Okay, I haven't called Chris Chris in 20 years because his name is Bird. I don't care what everybody else calls him. His name is Bird. 
You know, there is some fellowship that God just drops in our laps and it stays with us. Maybe three, four, five, six of these folks in a lifetime. But what happens when life or career or relationship or emergency or transition brings us to a place in time when we are surrounded by strangers, when we are surrounded by no one with whom we're in Christian fellowship. It's in those moments that some fellowship has to be made from scratch. Just like those delicious desserts on Wednesday nights with the crumbly buttery top. Somebody said to me recently, I can't imagine a scenario where I would walk into an adult Sunday school class. I can't imagine a scenario where I would do that. And I thought to myself, let me tell you about Sunday school. I remember when my grandmothers died. And I remember the people from their Sunday school classes in Roanoke and in Little Rock and here in Georgetown who came to my parents and blessed them and cared for them. It was the ladies from Sunday school. And I remember when my daddy got sick and it was the members of his Sunday school class who came and visited us at St. Joe and brought us food People I hadn't seen in years because I was living away and serving a church elsewhere who hugged my neck and we cried together even though we hadn't seen each other in years. And I remember the people at the church in South Carolina who said, we don't care that you're our interim pastor. You need to go be with your family and don't you dare call in because we've got this under control. Just go. And they were members of my Sunday school class. And I will never forget what it was like And some of you have been through pain a lot worse than my little girl's one night at UK Hospital. She was 11 weeks old, and I will never forget Jenny. Uh, I'm not going to look at you anymore. Uh, I'll never forget Jenny Conyers walking through the door. We'd been there about 20, 22 hours. And she didn't have a medical update for us. She didn't have answers. She didn't have an ironclad Statement of a clean bill of health, but you know what she did? She sat in the rocking chair in the corner of that room and she rocked my little girl. And that meant everything to me. Now some of y'all are thinking, she ain't in your Sunday school class? No, she's not. She's in that wonderful fellowship innovation. It's groundbreaking, y'all. It's called Bunko. She's in the Bunko group. With Megan and, and some of the other godly women in the life of this church. And they get together and they play bunko. And they open their lives to one another. And they share life together. And Jenny showed up. And I'll never forget it. I truly believe that in this crazy western world we live in in this 21st century. Where so many things about our faith are being questioned, and so many things about the structures of our faith are crumbling. I believe this is how evangelism is going to happen in the 21st century. In a world that says, you don't need connections. Even in the way we construct our buildings today, our homes and our neighborhoods, you don't have to have relationship. You should be able to just go on in your garage and not even have to see people. The church is going to be the place where people find community. The church is going to be the place where people find those who are willing to invest and share in life together. 
So this morning, that is our invitation. Have you found fellowship? Have you found fellowship first and foremost and most importantly with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And if today is the day that you need to say, yes, set me free, make me whole, make me clean, forgive me of my sin, be my Lord and Savior, we ask that you would share that decision with us so that we can celebrate. Or if you're saying, I'm in fellowship with Jesus Christ, but I'm a lone ranger. And I recognize the need to find fellowship with these sisters and brothers in Christ. I need to be a member of Georgetown Baptist Church. We would ask that you share that decision with us as well. Our musicians are going to lead us into a time of response. And as they come, would you be in prayer considering where is it that God is calling you into deeper fellowship? Is it with the Holy One, God's self? Is it with sisters and brothers in Christ? Is it with some organization or some group where you need to serve together with folks toward a goal that is bigger than yourself? Where is it that you need to be in deeper fellowship in faith? May we stand together and sing.